Would you turn uh, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22? We're just picking up our studies from this morning. This morning we looked at Gethsemane, and uh, this evening we're looking at the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. So it's Luke chapter 22 and verse 47. Luke 22 and verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against me? Have you come out as uh, against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his word. H.G. Wells was probably best known for his works of science fiction, The War of the Worlds, and the time machine, but he was also the author of many contemporary novels, history books, political essays, and even textbooks. In one of those books, he once said that this world was a great play that was directed and managed by God. As the curtain rises, the set is perfect and a treat to the eye of the audience. The characters are resplendent in their costumes and the scenery is magnificent. Everything goes well until the leading man steps on the hem of the dress of the leading woman. Uh, this causes her to trip over a chair, which knocks over a lamp, which pushes a table into the wall, which in turn knocks over the scenery, which in turn brings the whole thing crashing down on the heads of the actors. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, God is the producer and is running around, shouting orders, pulling strings, trying desperately to get things uh, back into order. But alas, the things are in such a mess, he can't. God is unable to do anything about the chaos. Poor God, says H.G. Wells. He is a very limited and little God. He is a very little and limited God. But Luke has a different story to tell. In the chaos and confusion of the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, Luke wants us to understand that God Himself is in control, that He's ordering everything to accomplish His great purpose and His uh, great end, which is the redemption of the world that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are so ordering events that they unfold just as He has determined. And we see that again and again in our study tonight in the betrayal and the arrest of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Himself acts in such a way to facilitate and cooperate with His enemies in order to bring about His arrest and his crucifixion. Remember in our study this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had prayed, not my will, but yours be done. He submits himself to the will of God 
knowing that the will of God for him is to bleed, suffer, and die. And he so then embraces the cross rather than shrinks from it. Uh, Harold, I was saying to you this morning on the way out that probably the greatest battle that the Lord uh, faced was the battle uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And certainly he uh, fought that battle, was victorious in that battle, and so, as the hymn says, joyfully goes to the cross. So, with that in mind, I want you to notice four things this evening. First of all, the, the people that arrested him. Notice verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Remember that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he had withdrawn to a lonely place to seek his Father in prayer. On a number of occasions, he had come back and warned the disciples to watch and pray so that they wouldn't fall into temptation. It was while he was still giving that final warning that they came with the intention of arresting him. They are led by Judas, who, you remember, had left the upper room uh, from the, went out from the Passover meal into the night. He already had made the deal, agreed the price, and now he leads the crowd to the place where he knew that Jesus would be. It had been a frantic few hours. He knows now that everything is ready. Um, he has everything in place so that he could successfully complete the arrest. In verse 52, we're given some insight into the composition of the crowd that came to arrest Jesus. Look at verse 52. Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple, and the elders. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. The other Gospels tell us that the scribes were there, Mark 14, that the Pharisees were there, John 18, and also what John calls a detachment of soldiers— now, he uses there a technical word that was used of a cohort of Roman soldiers, and a cohort was one-tenth of a legion. Now, a legion numbered 6,000. So, one-tenth of a legion was 600 men. So, in, uh, in other words, this crowd wasn't just a handful of people. It could have been close to 700 people. So you have the chief priests. Their presence gives a, a kind of seriousness to the events. You have the officers of the temple. They were the <clears throat> temple police, a bit like, I suppose, the Swiss Guard at the Vatican. They had a ceremonial role, but also were there to protect the temple itself. The elders were there. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the 70 people that made up the Jewish ruling council. The scribes were there. The Pharisees there were there. The ultra-religious laymen uh, of the day. And then the Roman soldiers, this detachment of 600 men that were stationed at Fort Antonio, just northeast of the, the, the temple. Um, and they come well prepared. Look at verse 52. You come with swords and clubs, says Jesus. The temple guards carry clubs because under Roman occupation they weren't allowed to bear arms. But the Romans come carrying swords. John 
tells us that they came with lanterns and torches, for even though there was a full moon being Passover, they were taking no chances. So here's a group possibly of up to 700 people armed to the teeth who come at night to arrest Jesus, the humble, peace-loving carpenter from Nazareth. But what I want you to notice in all of this is that our Lord is no helpless victim. He is in absolute control, perfect control of the events. Remember from the study this morning, I pointed out the significance of verse 39. Jesus went out as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. The NIV says he went to his usual place. So when he organized the room for the Passover, he dispatched Peter and John to make the arrangements. He kept Judas in in the dark. He didn't want the Passover uh, interrupted. He wanted to celebrate that meal with his disciples and institute uh, the, the Lord's Supper. But now he puts himself in a known place, in a place where Judas would know where to bring those uh, arresting officers. Mark tells us that his very last words to the disciples were, rise, let's go, here comes my betrayer. He doesn't run or hide as he sees them approach, but rather he goes out to meet them. You remember on uh, other occasions when the crowds tried to seize Jesus, he miraculously slipped through the crowd, escaping their grasp. But now there's none of that. He gives himself over to them. He neither resists nor rebels. He neither hides nor flees. He neither allows the disciples to spring to his defense, or, uh, nor does he call down the armies of heaven. He humbly, willingly, determinedly, graciously gives himself over to his captors. He had prayed in the garden, your will be done, and now in the purposes of God, he bows to that will and allows himself to be arrested. A little unlimited God trying to bring order when the world is out of control? I don't think so. He's in control even of this situation, the people that arrested him. The second thing I want you to notice is the the kiss that betrayed him. Look at verses 47 and 48. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The word traitor is one of the most despised words in the English language. The dictionary defines traitor as one who betrays friends, country, a cause, or a trust. It's an extremely negative, pejorative word. And there have been many notable um, traitors in the history of the world. Richard Lundy, Guy Fawkes, who tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament, Guy Burgess and Kim Philby, who betrayed British secrets into the hands of the Russians. But no name is so notorious and so treacherous as the name that's before us in in our text, the name of Judas. And there are a number of things in the text that highlight his wickedness. Notice in verse 47, he's described as one of 
the 12. That's the inner circle, the inner um, group of our Lord's followers. He's not one of the larger crowd who you remember when the Lord's teaching began to bite, to turn back and followed Him no longer. He's not even part of the 500 who attached themselves to Jesus during His earthly ministry. He's not one of the 70 that our Lord sent out in Luke 10, but He's one of the 12 personally selected, educated, and sent out as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Notice, too, that He betrays the Lord Jesus with a kiss, the universal sign of affection becomes a means of hypocritical rejection. This was the prearranged sign used by the authorities to identify Jesus. They didn't want the wrong man. They didn't want somebody else stepping up to take his place. You know, like Saddam Hussein, who had those body doubles who would uh, uh, appear in his place if there was any kind of threat. They wanted none of that. So they arranged this sign to identify the Lord. But a kiss. What hypocrisy. What treachery. What wickedness. In fact, Mark uses an intensive form of that word uh, that indicates that he kept kissing him and holding on to him. Not even in that culture uh, where a kiss was um, a, a, a normal greeting, sign of affection. Not even in, in, in that culture was that repeated kissing acceptable. And commentators have suggested that what Judas was doing was actually hugging and holding on to our Lord so that he couldn't get away until he was secured by the soldiers. So this kiss was not only a sign to indicate who Jesus was, it was a means of restraining him until ropes could be put upon him. And it seems even our Lord is disgusted by the means that Judas used to betray him. Verse 48, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? That line is intended to expose the seriousness uh, of the crime, the Son of Man. Remember, that's not just a reference to His humanity. It's a reference to that exalted figure in the book of Daniel where the Son of Man um, uh, appears before the Ancient of Days and is worshipped of, as God of very God. Are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? High despicable, high hypocritical, high sinful, this universal sign of affection is used to betray, to betray the Lord of glory. He betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss, with a kiss. But what I want you to notice, although our Lord seems surprised by, by the kiss, he, he's, he's not taken by surprise by the betrayal. You remember uh, back to an earlier study in Luke 22, in verse uh, 21, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, uh, we read, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That 
our Lord knows exactly that this who is, will betray him and that this betrayal would take place. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus said to Judas in the upper room, what you're about to do, do quickly. And uh, all of this, even Judas's betrayal and the events surrounding it were being ordered by divine providence. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, stands up and says to his listeners, men of Israel, listen to this. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked hands, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. There was no excuse for their wickedness. Their wickedness was wicked, was wicked and they would be held accountable for that wickedness. It was wicked hands that they, by wicked hands, they put him to death. But in that wickedness, God was at work, ruling, overruling, working uh, uh, through that wickedness to accomplish his purposes. And even in that kiss of Judas, that hypocritical kiss, that despicable kiss, that sinful kiss, God is at work accomplishing His purposes. A little and limited God, says H.G. Wells, running around in a frenzy trying to restore order to a collapsing world? I don't think so. A sovereign God who rules over all and overrides and overrules the wickedness of man to accomplish His purposes. We see that in the people that arrested him, in the kiss that betrayed him. And then thirdly, we see it in the disciple who defended him in verses 49 uh, to 51. Let's just look at those. Verse 49, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. If you go back to the institution of the Lord's Supper and uh, the celebration of the Passover, just notice in verse 38 how that account ends. Verse 38, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, "It, it is enough in the upper room, perhaps attached to the wall uh, in a a decorative way, or perhaps used in the preparation of the meal, there were two swords available. And in spite of the rebuke of Jesus, it is enough, or that's enough of that, it seems that two of these disciples took these swords with them. And here in verse 49, when the crowd arise to arrest Jesus, they say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, by, by, uh, before our Lord can even answer them, one who John identifies in his gospel as Peter whips out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Typical Peter, impetuous and uh, courageous uh, and foolish all at the same time. Now, the Baptist Victorian preacher Alexander McLaren says he is glad that somebody there was there to strike a blow for Jesus. However, I think he misses the point, just as Peter missed the point. 
Because I don't think Peter was aiming for the high priest's ear. Or the, sorry, the, the servant of the high priest's ear. I don't think he was aiming for that ear. I'm not even sure he was aiming for the servant of the high priest. I think he was probably aiming for the high priest himself. But obviously, Peter was a better fisherman than a swordsman, and he cut off the ear of the servant rather than the head of the high priest. It was a, um, a, a rash, blundering act that actually could have seriously undermined the mission of Jesus and the future ministry of the apostles. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus hadn't have rebuked him and left that ear unhealed? Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would have fought to prevent my arrest. Now, you may wonder why Peter was so impetuous. One or two swords against, remember, the cohort of Roman soldiers, 600 burly Roman soldiers armed to the teeth the temple guards with their clubs, and then the elders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and everyone else who were filled with uh, homicidal hatred. What on earth was he thinking about when he struck out with this sword? By any standards, his actions were not only rash and reckless, but impetuous and foolish. What motivated him to take on a crowd with a sword that probably wasn't much more than a carving knife, and a, a sword that he couldn't wield very well anyway. Well, just turn over with me to John's Gospel, chapter 18, for a moment. John, chapter 18. I remember I said this morning that um, a famous preacher once said that the, the rustle of um, uh, the pages of a Bible to a preacher are like the rustle of angels' wings. Uh, nothing encourages them more to hear that people are actually turning and looking up the verses. So, so look at chapter 18 and verse 2. Let's just read this for a moment. Uh, look 18, uh, chapter 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured, procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. How do you see the, the miraculous events that surrounded his arrest? So, uh, they come to arrest Jesus, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And uh, they say, Jesus. And he says, well, literally in the original, I am. Not I am he. There's no he there in the original, just I am. Now, do you remember what the divine name of God is in the Old Testament? 
Yahweh or Jehovah. And remember, Moses was given that name at the burning bush in Exodus 3, and Moses said, being called by God to lead the Egyptians out of bondage uh, into the promised land, he says, whom shall I send? Send me to them. And God says, I am who I am. That that divine name, Yahweh, means I am. And Jesus says, who have you come? Who are you seeking for? And uh, they say, Jesus. And he says, I am. And immediately they're knocked back and fall to the ground with that revelation of glory and that revelation of divinity. They're knocked to the ground. I am a supernatural tumbling of the troops. I am. They fall to the ground. Now, do you see why Peter was emboldened to whip out his sword and cut off a few, well, not ears, a few heads? Because he had seen that revelation of divine power. I am. And they tumble back, and they fall to the ground. And so, he reasons or reckons, even with 600 troops facing him from this Roman cohort, that he could take them out if they were restrained by the divine glory of God. Do you see why he acted in the way that he did? He had just witnessed the tumbling of the troops. But Jesus says in John 18, if you've still got your finger in John 18 in verse 11, put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You don't understand, Peter. I wrestled in the garden about that cup, that cup of wrath. And I I prayed, not my will, but yours be done. I'm I'm going to drink that, that cup. I'm going to bear that wrath. I'm going to die in the place of sinners. Put your sword away. They had tumbled at the revelation of his identity. And yet Jesus allows them to stand up, to come to him, to arrest him and secure him. He gives himself over to his captors because he is conscious that his purpose in coming into the world is to drink the cup that was given to him that he prayed, if it is possible, may it pass from me. But he had settled the issue that he was going to the cross to die. A little unlimited God? I think not. I think not. He is in perfect control of this situation, and he even heals the ear of the high priest's servant. Incidentally, that's the first surgical healing that we read of, the only surgical healing that we read of in Scripture. The ear was reattached because he knew that he was going to the cross, and he didn't want Peter's impetuous actions to interrupt that uh, uh, procession the cross. The people that arrested him, the kiss that betrayed him, the disciple that defended him. The last thing I want you to notice is the darkness that um, engulfed him. Go back to Luke chapter 22 and look at verse uh, 52. 
Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Out, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Because this, says the NIV, is your hour when darkness reigns. That's a defining statement in the text. That they came at night, and the physical darkness of the of the night represented the darkness of their hearts because this was was a wicked thing to do. They this is your hour when the power of darkness reigns. What they were about to do was a a wicked, wicked thing. In fact, they were controlled by the power of darkness. They were under the influence of the power of darkness. They were controlled, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, by the rulers, by the authorities, by the powers of this dark world. They were under the reign and control of Satan and his devilish powers. Darkness reigned in their hearts. Darkness prompted them uh, Darkness actuated them. Darkness motivated them. They were under the power of darkness. Darkness was about to do its worst. But I want you to notice that even when the the powers of darkness were unleashed, even that release of the powers of darkness were under the control of Jesus. It's an hour of darkness, he says. But it's only an hour. Do you see that? Uh, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This was the, the hour that darkness would reign when the devil and his cohorts would do their worst. But it was only, only an hour. And then the darkness would be dispelled and the darkness would disappear. Now, that R is not, not a literal R. It's symbolic of, of, of the darkness that shrouded Calvary when for three hours the pillar of darkness dropped upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But it would end. It was for a limited period. This is the hour when darkness reigns, but it's only an hour. It's for a a limited, for a restricted, for a, a, a specific period of time. That even in the darkness, even in all the brutality that was unleashed against the sinless Son of God. God Himself was in control. A very limited, little and limited God. Not at all. In all the chaos of Calvary, He was ordering, fixing, decreeing arranging that which was to come to pass. Why? Because this was God's great plan. This was God's great purpose. This was God's great remedy 
for the situation that men and women and young people, all of humanity, find themselves in. Because if ever sin was to be dealt with, then this hour of darkness needed to reign. And so he allows that hour of darkness to come. But only an hour. Only an hour. Because when he was led in the tomb on the third day, God raised him from the the dead and vindicated his work and ultimately ascended to the right hand of God. Even in the darkness, God was in control. A little, unlimited God. I think not. In all the events that surrounded Calvary, that led up to Calvary, God was in control. And the people that arrested him, and the kiss that betrayed him, and the disciple that defended him, and in the darkness that engulfed him. Amen.